So we start in Matthew chapter 5 from verse 1 to verse 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began, he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Can I invite our second reading? The second reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Frog to come and speak to us this evening. You've got a microphone on already. He's already... Frog, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi there, everybody. Evening. Great to be with you tonight. Um, yeah, my name's Frog. You heard right. I've been called Frog since <laughs> I was very small. Um, I'm married to Amy. I have three boys. A sport mad, 13, 13, and 10. Observant among you. We realize that's a set of twins. And um, I run a church called Latimer Minster that I've been running for the last nine years, coming up in two weeks' time. It started in my sitting room uh, and now meets on a 70-acre farm with a few hundred people and has some church plants dotted around the world as well. Um, always lots of things going on. And then also I teach uh, theology and train people to be evangelists. Yeah. Hey, that's pretty good, isn't it? 
Now, we're very excited to have Frog with us this evening. Frog has also started, how, many, how long ago did you start working with the diocese? Uh, November. November. So Frog will be around teaching at Winchester University as well. So, yeah, you can catch the him there. The stones throw away. The stones throw if away. If you throw the stone, you might hit me. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> can I pray for you? Please do. Please thank speak. You. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you that Frog can be with us this evening. Lord, I pray that you would anoint his words. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through him powerfully to us. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us. And that you would open our hearts, that you would open our ears to listen to what you have to say to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, it is genuinely great to be with you um, on a Sunday. And um, come middle of the week, come and um, met with many of your uh, staff members and some of the students as well over the past few months. And so it's absolutely wonderful to be gathering as God's people here on a Sunday night. I'm going to start, as we look at this epic passage, let's face it, it's the temptations, what hasn't been said before, so I hope I'm not going to bore you this evening, and, um, but I'm going to start with realizing that the temptations are the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and so as a bit of that understanding of Jesus' public ministry in the beginning, beginnings are very important, Julie Andrews was right, wasn't she? One, two, three, A, B, C. And when you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. Um, when Jesus' public ministry begins, it begins with three temptations. They're not called Do, Re, and Me. That would just work beautifully together. But I wanted to do a bit of a straw poll here for first lines of films and to see where you're at on them. Beginning of stories are so important. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. <laughs> Rebecca. Three billion human lives ended on August the 29th, 1997. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. Terminator. Terminator. One, two, or three? Two. Two. Terminator two, good guess, George. I'm disappointed. I've, I've tried this out before. I got a lot more Terminator two references before, so you guys obviously are not into sci-fi. However, this may age some of you. Here's one. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's called a non-specific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. Anyone? 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 Sorry, that's another Ferris Bueller gag. And um, you're right, it's Ferris Bueller's day off. And, um, and one last one as well. It was the best of times. This is not a film. It's the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, the epoch of incredulity, the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Tale of Two Cities, or a description of Parliament last week. <laughs> we live in turbulent times where people are trying to work out what's right and what's wrong. What are we really living for? What's important? Do we need just the material things, or do you need something more than that? Is there something more to life than this? These questions that get brought up, not just in an Alpha course, but in every human heart and every soul. 
what we have here in the temptations is Jesus wrestling with things which are of relevance to us because he talks about the battle for what psychologists call the visceral part, the very deepest parts of what it means to be human and what it means to live a life of true significance and of true eternal significance. As Jesus moves from his place of being the son of God, learning the scriptures, learning how to an obedient son, and then gets triggered into the truly significant era of his life that makes most sense to all of us. The reason that people have been sitting and worshipping and listening to the scriptures here on this very spot for 150 years is because of what happens next as part of this struggle. And because Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine, the struggle that he went for in the temptations is there to instruct our souls. It is a struggle that is common to all human nature It is a struggle that is common to all human beings and is a struggle that is common to every single one of us who wants to live a life of significance. Do we want to have some echoes from the sounds that we are making in this world? If we are dropped in the ocean of life, do we want the ripples to do something or do we want to sink without a trace? If we want to live a life of purpose and significance, we learn from the visceral struggle, the struggle between good and evil, which Solzhenitsyn says goes through the very every human heart. It's not always out there. It's not always the politicians. The real difficulty that we have is that struggle between good and evil goes through every human heart. And if we want to live a life of purpose and significance, the scriptures are so clear. This is the battle. This is the struggle. And Jesus went through it. He conquered. And he also leaves for us a sign of what it means to go through this temptation ourselves and to be truly in the causes of God, to be truly in the purposes of God, to leave a a stamp for eternity and not just for the three score years and ten that we have in front of us. The core understanding of what was going on in the temptations is to understand not just what is Jesus trying to achieve, what is God's purpose within the world, but what is the counter plan? What is Satan working hard at doing? Now, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is going to go to the cross. We know that Jesus is going to overcome these temptations. We know that Jesus was going to teach for three years his disciples, unpacking the scriptures, understanding the Old Testament and bringing a new covenant and a new relationship, we know that he's going to release the the powering presence of the Holy Spirit to all the people of God. We know that. We know that he's going to go to the cross. We know that three days later he's going to rise again and prove that he really was the image of God and the word of God and the son of God and God himself in the flesh. We know that. We know the end of the story. We know that people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue are going to be caught up, and people who are complete strangers are going to be made into a very people. People from all different racial boundaries are going to be made essentially one family. It's a miracle. It's never happened outside the church that people from completely different socio and economic groups and ethnic groups could genuinely be one family, 
So much so when Paul was wrestling with it, he said, this is the mystery of God. That Jews and Gentiles have become one people. This has never happened anywhere else. When I was a vicar in Peckham uh, for a few years, for seven years, uh, when I started, it was the most um, violent neighborhood in Britain. We um, were renowned for gun violence. One in three gun deaths in the UK happened in our neighborhood in the first few years that I was there as the vicar. It was a turbulent place. But as God started to work, as people individually made their own relationship with God in Christ, they began to realize that the person next door to them was their sister, that the person in front of them was like a granny or an aunt or a child or a brother. Family, a true community, started to rise as people began to realize that they were essentially one, that they were fundamentally the same and superficially different. They were fundamentally one but superficially divided, and we began to worship together. Advisors from number 10 Downing Street next door to a lady recovering from having been beaten black and blue by a crack addict ex-boyfriend. And they were sitting next door to each other, holding one another's babies, standing up and worshipping Christ together, with tears pouring down their face as they looked out for one another. A local councillor from one of the political parties came along and said to me, he said, I've wanted all my life, I've dedicated my life to creating a community that's equal. And the only place that I find it is at All Saints Peckham. That's where we were at the time. And he said, if it, if it wasn't for the God thing, it would be perfect. <laughs> and I said, it's only because of the God thing that our heart for community, that this equality can really, truly be real. Some of his family members chose to follow Christ. I don't know where he's at now. It was several years ago. And it was such a pleasure to be involved in it. What Satan was trying to achieve was stopping Christ from suffering. What Satan was trying to achieve was stopping Christ from suffering. All of these temptations were about finding an easy way or escaping the suffering of bodily injury or the suffering of isolation or the suffering of injured pride or the suffering of going a difficult way rather than an easy way. Every single one of these temptations was a choice. Will you go God's way, which may involve some suffering, or will you go my way or another way? If Satan could have persuaded Jesus to choose a non-suffering route before his ministry had begun and the job was done. He didn't need to deal with his preaching. He didn't need to deal with the threats to his life. He didn't need to deal with the cross and the resurrection. He didn't need to deal with anything. If he could handle this major one decision right at the beginning of Jesus choosing to avoid suffering at all costs, then his job was done. We're going to look at the, the nature of that struggle that goes on in every single human heart by looking at these three temptations in a moment. But we're going to come back to this as well because I want to give us pause. In a culture defined by pleasure and the avoidance of suffering, this is deeply challenging for us. 
and for a city defined as the happiest place to live, where you can live without suffering, where you can live with the pursuit of pleasure, where you can live with it all tickety-boo, it's potentially even more challenging. It could well be that the enemy is hard at work and we don't even know it. If he can stop the people of God being prepared to suffer either for God or for neighbour or for some great cause, then the job is done. Nothing else needs to be added. We'll just be swept aside in lives of insignificance. The first temptation, let's look at it. The battle is on. The first temptation of Jesus. Full of the Holy Spirit, it said. Return from the Jordan was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The first temptation is to escape physical suffering and desires. Now, I came across a wonderful report from a theologian called John Piper, who was writing in 1984. That's right, before most of you were born. And he and his friend Noel went on a shopping trip, and this is what he talked about. Last Thursday, Noel and I took out three hours of our day off to visit computer stores to find out what sort of word-processing possibilities we might be able to afford. We went to the library and we read the latest consumer reports and then went down to four stores downtown. It was an amazing experience. I came back home with a stack of literature and my mind reeling. And here is what I learned, that computers are like sex. There is something in us that can hook us and hold us. Computers are like romance or an epic or an adventure that has become true before our very eyes, combining mystery and power and precision and beauty, exciting and new and open-ended possibilities. Our culture is in for unimagined and irreversible effects from this microcomputer revolution. I don't doubt that virtually every one of us will have one at home by 1994. The uses will expand, the prices will fall, and they will be as common as a telephone. But for all of the unusualness that was pointed out to people in the 1980s, he was right in pointing out one thing, that they can have an effect, this visual digital revolution can have an effect upon the Christian mind and upon our Christian spirituality. It can make it feel as if spiritual things are not real and not exciting. The Bible often speaks of largely unseen things, things that don't force themselves into our senses, things that are sometimes far away in the past, but now we've got this wrestle, this gadget that's right in front of us and is so immediate. How easy is it to hold on to these stones? these computer chips, this silicon, this quartz, and make it come to life. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, by these stones, by what we can taste and feed on, but on the word of God, something that is able to set us on fire, that we are able to survive without, without which we cannot survive the word of God. He sets up this challenge. There's a non-suffering route of saying every time we have a problem, 
turn this problem into a managed solution. And Jesus, by going back to the scriptures, by going back to possibly a meditation upon Deuteronomy, realizes that there is a choice to be had. You know, the people, when they went through the wilderness, when they followed the word of God, what happened? Manna came from heaven and they had all the food that they needed. If you pursue food, you don't end up with the word of God as a byproduct. If you pursue the word of God, everything that you need to survive is added to you. It doesn't work the other way around. You pursue the word of God. That struggle, that first wave of the struggle over what is immediate, what is material, what I can taste and touch and feel, what will satisfy my desires that is never going to go away. Three times a day, no, I lie. Six times a day, I want something to eat for lunch. I want my second breakfast, my 11Zs and my second tea, like a hobbit. Those will never go away. But so often we find that the struggle for the word of God, the first temptation, is to choose what is eternal over what is temporary. And to choose what might lead to suffering. You see, people of conviction, people who understand what the word of God is, begin to realize that human beings are made with dignity and purpose and are made in the image of God. They will fight for the rights of those who are oppressed. They will fight for it. Wilberforce and Wesley were people who were involved in this struggle for all sorts of liberation. They were formed by this understanding of the word of God. And Wesley, towards the end of his life, became aware that Wilberforce was running out of steam, running out of steam in trying to battle against slavery. And the very last thing that he wrote, the very last letter that he wrote, was a letter to Wilberforce calling him to hold fast. Hold fast to the word of God over every other thing. The battle for slavery was exactly that. The material, the commodified, turning human beings into resources that are going to feed people versus human beings are made in the image of God. Am I not your brother? The essential brotherhood of man. Wilberforce suffered. People suffered in order to hold on to what it means to be human versus what it means to be just a resource, just commodified, where you could leave children your slaves in your will if you were dying. That was the battle. That was the temptation. It's real in every generation, and it's real in ours as well. Human beings being commodified. Departments called human resources instead of human beings. The treasures that we are in jars of clay. The essential dignity of the human person. That's all in the scriptures. You will not find that in the computer chip. You will not find it in a material culture saying human beings are essentially dignified. Human beings are worth it. Laying down your life for other people is worth it. Suffering for the sake of others is worth it. Jesus lived that out. And we as Christians will face that temptation at a personal level and as a corporate level in every single generation. It's the first temptation. But many of us fall down at that first hurdle. The second temptation. And in fact, in, in the different Gospels, the order is slightly different. The order of the temptations is not so important. It's the, the content of them 
that is most important. Over 40 days, we believe that these temptations probably like, um, like balls in a, in, a, in a machine were just pinging off all over the place. Jesus was handling these three fundamental areas of struggle between the word of God and the kingdom of God and the agenda of, of the enemy for these 40 days. So it doesn't really matter which order they're in. In Luke, and they're one slightly different order than they are in Matthew. But in Matthew, this one comes second. The devil took him to the highest, the holy city, and made him stand on the highest point in the temple. Verse 6, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift up, lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put your Lord God to the test. Satan may well have a hand in trying to persuade you to take a course of action in your life which would lead you to avoid suffering. If you suffer, if those around you suffer, Satan will suggest that there's an easier way, a way without such personal cost, a way without heartache and stress and illness and sleepless nights, where feet don't strike rocks, where rocks turn from stone, where high rocks place us above all contradiction, where nobody criticizes us, where nobody hauls us over the coals, where nobody slags us off, he'll say there's a way. There's a way of being a leader in your workplace where you'll never get criticized. There's a way of being a parent where you never have to discipline anyone. There's a way of being, never having to worry about money or debt. Maybe there's a way of doing that. Or there's a way which is true to us as human beings where we have to struggle through these things in order to pursue the cause of God? Is there a way where we could float above all suffering? Satan says, yes, it's absolutely fine. Just worship me and we're all good. There is often a choice. The poet Steve Turner says, if you want to go up in the world, you need somebody to stand on. It's possible to avoid conflict by making sure that all of those who challenge you, you crush. It's possible, but it's not good, and it's not right, and it's not the way that Jesus was going to build the kingdom of God, and it is not the way that Christian churches in any generation are meant to grow and multiply. Not by oppressing others, not by disregarding the victims, not by saying that this person's voice is not important, not by just keeping the show on the road and running the institution no matter what the cost and no matter what the, the individual is being, what individuals are suffering along the way. There are ways of building the kingdom of God that keep the integrity of the worship of God rather than going Satan's way, even though it may be quicker. What will that look like for us? Second thing we see in this temptation is that when Satan means business, this is Charles Spurgeon's quote, when Satan means business with a great saint, he doesn't mind using scripture. What we see in the second temptation is that the Bible is being used in this debate. It is possible for people to co-opt scripture for their demonic ends. I've heard people co-opt a scripture to justify wife-beating. I've heard people justify scripture to bolster apartheid or racism or the slave trade. People were perfectly happy to use a scripture passage and to turn it round for their own means. If it was so easy, 
you could just look at the verse and get that all sorted out. And Jesus would, and then Satan said, no, I can use that. I can pick up a Bible. I can work with this. Religious-minded oppressors have always been able to do that. The enemy is able to make a particular scripture work with you in one side and not the other. I remember one time in a difficult situation trying to find a verse in Proverbs that, that I thought maybe justified paying somebody a bribe. I was desperately looking for it. I was stuck in a border between no man's land, between Turkmenistan and Afghanistan. It's another story. And I was looking for a way to get over it. And I thought, I'm sure there's a proverb where it's okay to pay a bribe. Mercifully, I couldn't find that verse. And we didn't have to pay a bribe. And we were able to go meet the Taliban and share the gospel with them and give them Bibles in their own languages. And we didn't know if we were going to come back okay. But we did know that, that we needed to share the gospel with people. And we did know that we needed to go into Afghanistan and even though we were undergraduates at the time, give them Bibles in their own language and we had Russian and Pushtu and Farsi Bibles to give them to them. Did we know that we were going to come back for the Trinity term at Oxford University? We did not know that. But we did know that God had spoken. It was right for us to, to do that. I don't know what challenges you're facing. It might not be the Taliban. I don't know what's, what you're facing at work. Maybe you've got a tin pot dictator at work. Maybe you've got somebody who's a bit of an emotional terrorist in your home or in your family. I don't know who you're going to have to face up to in the course of, of being bold and courageous. Calling somebody out and saying, no, it's not right to treat your employees like this. I don't know what your challenge is going to be. You do. What's it going to look like for you? That, that second temptation... And remember that, that the enemy can even use a scripture. And lastly, in this temptation, when Satan cannot disprove God, he tries instead to discredit him. Richard Dawkins writes, by describing Yahweh in the Old Testament as arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filiocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, or maniacal, depending on how you pronounce it, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Is that the God that you have seen in Christ? It is not. But sometimes, if you can't disprove, discredit. If you can't get rid of a reality, pour water over it. Lord Hailsham, twice a minister of education, once a minister of science and a previous leader of the House of Commons, wrote in his autobiography, by contrast, I'm quite sure that the centre of all of my life, the thing which gives coherence to the rest of it, is my belief in God. What I'm first of all saying is something which I believe about reality. There is an element in all true knowledge in which the mind of the knower leaps like a spark across a void to an intimate and direct contact with reality itself. To be in relationship with God is to be in relationship with reality itself. It's not a delusion, it's not a fantasy, it's reality breaking in upon our lives and we adjust accordingly. There was a mock worship. Worship me, says Satan. But it's the nature of God which makes our hearts sing. Not just the word God, that you fit anything you like in it. It's the very nature, the very being of God. God is personal. God is loving. God is kind. God is Father. God is speaking. 
God is tender and merciful and compassionate, but fierce and holy. It is the nature of the God that we know and we love, who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. It says it's not just G-O-D, fill in the blanks. It is God as known in Jesus Christ, the very nature of God. I don't want to know if there is a God. I want to know if God is good. You see, the God that Dawkins does not believe in, I do not believe in either. I don't blame him. This is why early Christians were called atheists. Because people said, oh, God is this, God is Zeus. And they were saying, I don't believe in that. Those are fictitious. Those are projections of the imagination. But there is a God, and we have known him. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, says John. There is a God, but you have to know him, and he is there to be known. And once you have met him, you realize that everything else is a fantasy, a projection, a hologram. I know my wife. I can see the difference between a picture of my wife and knowing my wife. When you've met God, this is what Jesus was working for. No, I'm not going to just say a worship song. I want people to know the real and living God. That's the second temptation. Reality over fantasy. Reality over the diversion. The true over the lie. The good over the evil. To choose what is good. To know him. That's the second temptation. Is that worth living for? Is that worth dying for? And the third temptation, that third visceral struggle that we see here. He took him to a very high mountain. All this I will give to you. Bow down and worship me, he says. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. And then the devil left him. And the angels came and attended to him. That third temptation is avoiding the suffering of injured pride and injured ambition. There are so many other people around to flatter us, to flatter ourselves. A man walked into a bar a little while ago. It's not necessarily a true story. And he ordered a beer and he took his first sip of ale and he suddenly heard a voice saying, nice shirt. He looked around, he saw the bar was empty, except for himself and the bartender. He took a few more sips, and this time the voice said, cool jacket. The man called the barman over, he said, I must be losing my mind to the landlord. I keep hearing these voices saying nice things to me, but there's no one in here but us. Oh, 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 said the landlord, it's the peanuts. It's what, said the man in disbelief. You heard me, said the landlord, it's the peanuts. They're complimentary. Flattery can sometimes trap us into thinking something which is not true. And we can make our judgments, we can make our mind up both positively and negatively. When C.S. Lewis and Augustine, both of them, looked into Christianity in the first place, they thought that it wasn't worth worshipping. Augustine didn't like the way that it was written in bad Latin. And he was a professor of rhetoric at the University of Milan. He thought, how can truth come to you in bad prose? Maybe some English teachers might agree with you. C.S. Lewis said, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I would not go into churches. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. (laughs) 
But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of different outlooks and different education, and gradually my conceit began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, and then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots, and it gets you out of your solitary conceit. The worship of God is nothing like anything else. It changes us. It transforms us. They say we are transformed into the likeness of the thing that we worship. In our image culture, people worshipping celebrities start shaping their bodies to try to look and emulate like everybody on Instagram without realising that the Instagram is a filter and nobody looks like that in the first place. And we begin to conform our sense of self and our sense of likeness to the image-laden world that we are in. But when we worship God, we who are made in the image of God become more like him, more loving, more compassionate, more like Christ as we worship God. We begin to reflect the one that we worship. How much better to reflect somebody who lays down his life for the least and the last and the lost instead of somebody who puffs up their life with fakery. We can become like the one that we worship. Do you not want to become like Christ? And lastly, I want to leave you with a suggestion. In this battle, I've been thinking and praying for you as a church and as a congregation as I worked my way down here. And I just had a sense, really, to share with you what I think is, I want to suggest with you to weigh it up, as it may be something. In this passage, Jesus is baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. He then has this big struggle in the wilderness, but then it was all for life after the wilderness. I sense that for you as a church, there is a life after the wilderness. But there's still some visceral work to be done, purging one's heart and one's soul from these battles so that you're ready, as Jesus, when he left the wilderness, when he finally overcome this battle in the soul about pleasure versus suffering, about the word of God versus the material things. It says the angels came to minister to him, and then, do you know what he did? He went to the city. The city was waiting. Capernaum was beckoning. Nazareth was beckoning. The villages around Galilee, they were beckoning. There is life beyond the wilderness for this congregation and for you. And you are about to be sent to the city, to the university, and then to the world. There is some work to be done between the baptism and the fullness of the Spirit and changing the world forever. There's still some work to be done. The temptations is the beginning of the story. Do you want to participate with the story that Jesus is writing with you? Paul said, you are my letter. We, as the people of God, are being written and woven into a story. God has an outcome. There is life beyond the wilderness for you, individually. If you felt you were going round and round in circles, they said that it only takes a matter of weeks to get from Egypt to the promised land. 
but it took 40 years for them in the wilderness to do it. Why was that? It only takes a few weeks to get there, but it takes 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. There's still more Egypt to get out of the Israelites. And Jesus allowed himself to go through that. If you're struggling with these visceral things, with this battle between pleasure and the pursuit of God, Jesus went through it too. And he invites us to walk with him, to walk this way, to embrace the cross and change the world for the better forever. We don't want to be campaigning. We want to be starting a revolution. We want people never to be the same again. We don't want people trampled. We want people raised up. But why do we do that? Because they're made in the image of God and Jesus has given us a commission. And so I want to offer that to you guys as a community. From that fullness of the Holy Spirit, that that work of a charismatic church, to be baptised in the Spirit and and yet also to, to baptise people really, to their desire to change the world. And that wilderness period is a little bit of sorting out the pursuit of the word of God and the avoidance of suffering at any costs in order to be truly in the cause of God and being children of the kingdom of God. Amen.